Welcome to The Quarantine Tapes, a daily podcast from Onassis, L.A. and Dublin. Hosted by Paul Holdengraber, this series chronicles shifting paradigms in the era of social distancing. Hello. Hello, can I please speak with Andrew Solomon? What a pleasure to hear your voice, Paul Holdengraber. What a pleasure to have you on the line, and thank you so much for being part of the quarantine tapes. I really, really wanted to talk to you, and I'm so delighted that you were able to find the time. Tell me, Andrew, where do I find you, actually, during this time? We're in Rhinebeck, in what used to be a weekend house, which is about two hours north of New York City. And you've been there throughout the pandemic? Yes, we came up in March, and I've been in New York only once since then. Now, Andrew, I've been meaning to ask you so many questions, but let me start with this. What do you think the psychological effects of the pandemic will be? What is this time doing in some way to people's brains and psychologies? People stand at the brink of enormous changes in social structure. Um, They will, to some extent, be determined by the election in November and how that shifts our response to coronavirus. But this long period of relative isolation has had extraordinary effects on people. It has made people who have never before experienced mental illness, experience escalating symptoms of depression and anxiety. It's made people who previously had those conditions sicker than they were. And it's left even the people who don't tread into the territory of clinical diagnosis with a sense of impermanence and fragility that I think there is no comparison for. You know, we lived in the world with a kind of underlying assumption, two world wars notwithstanding, Mm. that the social order was permanent and that nothing would really change and that if our lives were okay, they were likely to go on being okay except for the possibility of tragic illness or physical disaster. And I think this has given us a sense that there can be something not which is immediate and horrifying like 9-11 or like an earthquake, but something that is sustained and completely changes the way that we interact and socialize with one another. And I think that there has been a certain amount of discovery in that, but a great deal of sadness. I think there's an almost universal experience of loss that is devastating to many of the people who um, have lost not only their connection to the friends they no longer see and the places they no longer go, but also to their sense of stability and security in the world. But also, we've become so fearful of each other. Yes, and the fear of each other is a terrible thing, and it's impossible to figure out where we're being overly cautious and where we're being underly cautious, but almost everyone is being both of those things some of the time. And we have to balance all the time the sense of the terrible physical risk that's attached to seeing people and the sense of mental or psychological risk that's attached to not seeing people. And I think that's especially acute for children, and I've seen it with my own children who have done reasonably well with this level of isolation, but reasonably well is still not terrific. 
I feel if I miss two years of my life in my 50s, that I'll live the rest of my life and it will be fine. That these years in the lives of children are lives in which they should be going through crucial stages of development that are defined by interactions with their peers. And to make children afraid of one another, to have children saying, I don't want to go to school because I might make you sick, to have children carrying the burden of this illness. Um, I think the, the fear that people have of one another is terrible and that the concomitant isolation, isolation having been already the great ill of the 21st century, the isolation has been toxic. Is there any way to prepare the children? Well, I think one has to help them feel loved and I think one has to take risks. I mean, my mm. son is 11, and um, uh, one of his friends and that friend's family came and stayed with us last weekend. And then we went up and visited them for a few days um, at the uh, young boy's grandfather's house later in the week. And I thought to myself, well, I'm trusting a lot of people. I mean, I think they've all been very cautious. They've all been very careful. They've all been very deliberate. I'm making a leap of trust. On the other hand, one makes a leap of trust every time one gets in a car on the New York State Thruway. So, That's you know, true. there's risk involved and there's danger involved. And the question is how much risk it's appropriate to tolerate. And in a way, that's determined by the result. You know, the risk that we took last weekend results in um, uh, my child getting sick and being disabled over the long term and in, you know, one of us dying. And we'll think that was an unbelievably stupid risk to take. Assuming he doesn't, we'll think, well, at least we did something to preserve his mental health in this period. What I, what I hear you say also is that you, uh, in, in the half century you have of living so far, will be able to cope with it. But children perhaps will miss out something that is so important. And, and this is something I'd love you to address, we always want our children in a way to be less online, less in front of the screens, more looking at the stars and the clouds. And now what we have is what I've heard recently someone say, cogito ergo zoom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I knew that would yeah. make you laugh. But now that you've laughed, let's be serious about the implications of this return um, to the screen when we try to get away from it. Well, the return of children to the screen, lots of people I know resisted it for the first three months of quarantine. And then as quarantine became longer and longer and lockdown continued and social isolation continued, we all sort of gave up and said, look, you know, I want you to read some books and I want you to come for a walk. But if you actually want to spend four hours staring at that screen and playing a game and it keeps you happy then you go ahead and do it. Um, and so I think children are spending far too much time online. My own children are spending far too much time online, and I feel strongly about it. But even we as adults are spending so much time online, and the interaction is not the same. I wish I were sitting opposite you in a studio Me or too. in your own Me commodious too. living room rather than doing this by phone, but it's, it's not viable. Um, and I think also one of the ills of our time is um, not only personal isolation, but also um, isolationism as a policy in 
the United States and in many other countries at the moment as well, and the complete closing down of leisure travel um, is going to increase uh, that sense of uh, isolationism. So I think that that's um, I think that that's very dangerous, and I think trying to figure out ways to keep our children's lives you know animated and interesting and and worth living in their own view is um, incredibly important. I mean, they can be very well loved by their parents, and it makes an enormous difference. And children who are not well loved have a hard time recovering from it. But being well loved by your parents is not the sum total of what's involved in a happy childhood. A happy childhood requires being able to go outside and play with other children um, and interact with them and joke with them. And, you know, the fabric of my friendships is vested in language. Really, it occurs in conversation. But the fabric of my children's friendships is vested in doing things together because children don't yet have a vocabulary with which fully to articulate their inner lives and it's shared experience that they need to accumulate with their friends. And so while my friendships can be sort of coaxed along through phone calls and Zoom calls, I feel that theirs can't in the same way, and they'll have to be completely reconstructed on the other side of this. You know, I think I think so often of this this comment of Adam Phillips, a psychoanalyst and and critic and writer I so much admire, as you know, who said, and I think it's true about children as much as it is about adults. You can't tickle yourself. We need we need others. Yes, that's very very good and absolutely right. Um, uh, we do need um, we do need others, we need, and we, and we need the deprivation of. We need to be touched I, by others in, 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 in so many different ways that the word touch might mean here. For you, for me, it might be a conversation. Um, for children, as you, I think, correctly said, it's, it's doing things. It's another form of language, but it's not a form of language where you're having a, necessarily a conversation. There is a phenomenon called um, uh, touch deprivation. And even in some journals, um, the phrase touch starvation gets used and it relates not really to the kind of contact that we can have um, at a physical distance, but to the physical fact of touching other human beings. And there are endless studies, which I won't try to dig up and quote, but that show that you're, you know, when you are physically touched by another human being, your oxytocin levels are altered and your cortisol goes down and all kinds of other things are happening physiologically. I have many friends who are either single or who, for various reasons, ended up quarantining in different places than their um, spouses or their children, uh, and who really have hardly touched anyone or been touched by anyone uh, over this whole long period. And I think that is not only, you know, sort of sad, it's not just that they miss it. I think it actually has uh, chemical consequences in the brain uh, as well as psychodynamic ones. You know, you recently said about the rise in mental health complaints since the pandemic began. You wrote, if 40% of Americans are experiencing this, it's difficult for it to remain stigmatized in the way that it did when it was a lower percentage. But the percentage has always been higher than people believe. And then this sentence, Andrew, one of Andrew's sentences, and I've sometimes called depression the family secret that everybody has. Love you to unpack this a little further. Even before the pandemic began, there were more people with depression than most people realized. And when I published a book about depression, people said to me, oh, 
you know, don't you feel terribly vulnerable? Don't you feel like people are going to look at you differently? Don't you worry about how people will respond to what you said? And I said, the response, almost without exception, is that every single person I meet who finds out what I've written says, uh, I've been on such and such medication and I'm a bit worried about it. Or my sister hasn't been doing very well and I'm uh, afraid of what's going on. Or I had a great aunt once who committed suicide and it left such a trail of destruction in our family or whatever it was they said. I just found that there was much more depression out there than people realized and that the response almost universally to someone who was willing to talk about it openly was to uh, share painful stories. Uh, but that was then. Now, yeah. the number of people who are experiencing symptoms of clinical depression is much, much, much higher um, because of the various factors that you and I have just been discussing and others besides the factor of um, a terrible loss when people have died and the loss of economic security that plagues um, such a large part of the population worldwide at this point. And so many people who had some degree of vulnerability to depression that had never before been triggered have now had it triggered and are really in a state of depression. And yet many of them won't seek um, treatment, either because they don't know how or because they don't understand that what they have um, is in part a clinical condition that would be subject to amelioration, um, or because they don't have the insurance or whatever it is that they need to pay for it. Um, and so a large number of people are going around with untreated and really quite pronounced depression. And that is never a healthy move for society. The people who are depressed will be less economically productive for the society as a whole. They will be less well able to take care of their children or their parents or whomever they need to take care of. They will be altogether less um, uh, less functional in the world. They will also be suffering terribly. And there is a moral imperative to mitigate the suffering that exists in the world. And uh, we aren't we aren't rising to it. In China, when the whole thing began in Wuhan, they brought in thousands of mental health workers um, to help people in Wuhan to deal with what was happening. In the United States, mental health is treated as a sort of self-indulgence at the leisure class, and it's shunted away, and nobody is bothering to engage except for some uh, good-hearted organizations. But nobody at the official government level is trying to engage with the secondary crisis of this time of uh, pandemic. And also, uh, the, the word we didn't didn't use enough uh, uh, here is the word stigma. And I'm 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 curious if you were to imagine. Let's us let us say for a moment, you were put in a position where you actually could change um, or better uh, the healthcare system as it pertains to mental health. Um, what would you do? Well, in the first place, I would institute programs of aggressive outreach because at the moment, the only people who get treated are the ones who self-identify as depressed. And by and large, people who are going through difficult times don't recognize when the grief that is occasioned by those times has spilled over into mental illness. Um, I would uh, do whatever could be done to, uh, if not erase the stigma, at least reduce the stigma around mental health treatment, I had a letter just yesterday from a desperate mother who said, you know, my son has had all of these problems, but he keeps saying he wants to handle them on his own and he doesn't want to get treatment. And I just thought, oh, for heaven's sakes, I mean, life is short, go and get the treatment. We're in the middle of a pandemic and you can sort of drop it later on um, if you decide you don't like it or that it isn't helping you. But 
this resistance um, to acknowledging or recognizing the condition and then to doing what's necessary to get treatment for it, I think it's a, you know, it's a, a hideous uh, carbuncle on um, the face of our nation. Andrew, you've, you've suffered what I will call two tremendous losses in the past year. Um, one, a professor you dearly loved and a, a great critic, and another, Dr. F., the psychoanalyst you had for a quarter of a century. I'd like to begin with Harold Bloom, who mattered to you greatly. And in an obituary for Harold Bloom, you wrote the following. Whenever he explained what made a particular poem noble, there was continuity with everything else he had elucidated, so that studying with him was not a succession of momentary revelations, but a gradual process of understanding a unifying view of literature and, indeed, of life. Can you say something more about that unifying view of literature and indeed of life and how he made you perhaps appreciate certain works that until then perhaps you had not appreciated fully? We find ourselves in a moment when the idea of greatness is itself very much stigmatized and when it is recognized as unjust that some achieve greatness and some don't. Um, and when there is an attempt um, to rewrite, uh, to eliminate really the canon and to rewrite the academic curriculum so that it's reflective of the experience of ordinary people in ordinary times. And it is true that the experience of ordinary people is an important lens on history and is a way in which it is important to engage with the society we're in. But Bloom was an unapologetic believer that there was genius in the world, that that genius was profoundly beautiful, and that giving more people access to that genius than might otherwise have had it was a life's calling. And I would walk into a class that he was teaching thinking, oh, I'm not very interested in this particular poet. And I would walk out thinking, that's one of my favorite poets in the world. His ability to open up for you, what made something remarkable was extraordinary. And while I'm sure it will be seen as a reactionary position and perhaps um, one that people uh, disparage um, in this time of um, equalization and uh, democratic socialism, I think there is, particularly in the art, such a thing as authentic greatness. Um, and I think being able to give people access to it is an extraordinary gift. And I feel so lucky to have had those years with Harold and to have heard him talk over and over again um, about the idea of, um, of what was exquisite or profound or moving or painful um, or exhilarating in works of literature. Um, it, it's It's a vision that I hope will come in some measure, however altered, back into passion. How did he do it? And do you have an example? Uh, he did it by reading uh, things deeply and closely. He did it in part by having an eidetic memory, which served him extremely well, so that he was able always to say um, uh, how one work of literature connected to another. But I think he did it most of all by being an appreciator and an enthusiast. And I think that kind of enthusiasm has vanished 
when I chose the epigraph for my last book, I had chosen something from W.H. Alden that I knew wasn't quite right. And um, then uh, I was just going through um, some notes, and I remembered um, Harold Bloom reading us um, Wallace Stevens' The Poems of Our Climate. Um, and I thought, oh, yes, I thought that's actually the essence of what I've been trying to say. What was the epigram? The epigram was... Um, the imperfect is our paradise. Note that in this bitterness, delight, since the imperfect is so hot in us, lies in flawed words and stubborn sounds. I had written a book that dealt in part with disability and entirely with social difference. And I felt like, yes, many of the people who are disabled or who uh, in some other way deviate from the norm have been made to feel that we are, in fact, imperfect and therefore inferior. And that trope, which I remember Bloom unpacking so beautifully in um, the first class I ever took with him, um, that idea, um, since the imperfect is so hot in us, um, delight lies in flawed words and stubborn sounds. And I thought we are the flawed words and the stubborn sounds. And he has, in fact, described exactly what we address. Since you're speaking about far from the tree, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, do you know what effect the pandemic has been having on some of the families you wrote about in Far From the Tree? Yes, I'm in touch with many of those families, and many of them have been struggling. Um, and many of them who, for a variety of reasons, had placed their children in care, have had those children return to life at home. It's been difficult for the parents. It has been difficult for um, uh, the children. Uh, people who have health care needs have been afraid to access medical services because hospitals have been a site of contagion in the pandemic. And so people who, for example, needed to have new hearing aids haven't been getting them. Um, and people who are transgender and really needed to have interventions before they developed the so-called wrong puberty are not able to access those uh, interventions and so on and so forth. Um, and uh, I think people who are different or disabled are more likely to be isolated in the first place. Yes. And so the escalation in their isolation um, has been shocking and painful to encounter. I, I said, Andrew, uh, that you had suffered two losses and you wrote, I, I have to say, so beautifully. I, I can't encourage our readers strongly enough, fervently enough, with enough enthusiasm, how extraordinary your article is about um, the psychoanalyst you saw for 25 years, uh, a, a piece that came out on May 10th of this year in The New Yorker, which had the title Grieving for the Therapist Who Taught Me How to Grieve. And you say in it, I miss him with all my heart, but I know that, but I know that what I feel is grief and not despair. Perhaps you could help us understand what that distinction is, and please talk about Dr. F. Well, um, uh, Dr. Friedman was um, an extraordinary man, Rick Friedman, Richard C. Friedman. Um, he had uh, been someone to whom I was recommended, I think, because he had done a lot of work on destigmatizing uh, homosexuality, though he was not gay himself. 
uh, he felt that gay people were very badly treated within psychoanalysis, and he uh, did a lot to change that. Um, very brave and courageous work at the time that he undertook it. But the basis for the long-term uh, advantages that my work with him bestowed was his brilliance and his insight and his very deep and loving kindness. And while I suppose I will eventually find another therapist because my mental health has sometimes been extremely fragile, um, there won't be anyone else who lives with me through um, uh, my uh, experiences of such intense depression, I hope. Um, through the experience of thinking I would never find uh, a person I wanted to spend my life with or have children, through all of the very painful experiences that he helped to guide me through. And one of the things that we did was to talk a lot about how my sadness could escalate into severe depression. And I take it as a great tribute to the success of his intervention that during this quarantine, I have experienced so much sadness and so little depression, so much grief and so little despair in the language of the article. He was someone who had a glorious sense of humor, um, which made the sessions bearable, but who also was able to target the sources of feelings that I had. And in exposing the sources of those feelings, allow me to gain much more control of them than I would have otherwise deemed possible. So I also take antidepressant medication and so on. But you, but you feel you you say so beautifully in in the article that you feel his loss is greater than just about any loss. I mean, it's a terrible loss, and as we deal with unprecedented experiences. My wish and impulse is to call up Dr. Friedman and say to him, you know, what do you think about this and how about that? And I was thinking this and this is something I'm worried about. Um, about half the time, I know what he would have said. Yeah. So I say it to myself in his voice. But about half the time, I don't. We're living under novel circumstances. And like all human beings, I myself am in flux. And I would have wanted to hear what he had to say. Um, he brought a kind of transparent logic to uh, agonizing experiences. And I miss that. And I miss his warmth. And 25 years is a long time to see someone for 90 minutes once a week. Uh, and there was a great intimacy there. And at a time when You know, the older generation, my father and so on, are um, in their twilight years. Um, he represented a force of wisdom and stability of a kind that I have relied on all my life. And he was perhaps the last of its great exponents to go. And so I am bereft of that and now have to play that role in the lives of other people. And that's a kind of growing up that I know one should perhaps have done by the time one is 56 years old, but that I haven't. Um, I, and I'm finding it tough. I, I, I know I know the feeling. I know the feeling. And what I love about your piece, too, is the way in which you recognize that maybe his practical advice was not great. Yes. His practical advice tended, in fact, to be quite misguided. Um, and uh, it took me some years to figure that out. He understood the very deep why of anything that I was feeling or experiencing or doing. And his insight into the other people around me as I recounted their behaviors and exploits 
was unparalleled um, and deep. Um, I don't know how well he led his own day-to-day life because I wasn't in it. I know that he had a very devoted wife and has a son who adores him, so he functioned well enough in the world in those regards. But his emotional wisdom was better than his practical wisdom. Practically, we had different ways of doing things. You know, one one moment in, in the article that I love is when you say, for 25 years I looked at the wood grain on the side of his desk and saw anthropomorphic faces but it never seemed like the right moment to show them to him. I never would. That detail is extraordinary because it is the kind of detail one notices when one goes back again and again to the same place and perhaps with a story to tell when it's looking at something intently. It would have been very different if he had had one of those deaths in which the imminence of demise is so obvious that you go through a process of saying goodbye. And then I could have decided to say, I never told you this, but there are actually faces in the wood grain on the side of your desk. But I walked into his office for what it turned out would be the last time with no sense at all that it was the last time. I mean, I knew he was growing old and frail, but it didn't seem to me like the last time. And then I had one more appointment with him that I canceled because I had something else I needed to do. And I felt terrible regret about that cancellation. And I feel as though it's not that there was a great deal we needed to say to each other that we hadn't said, but I feel as though I was cheated of a kind of closure um, that might otherwise have been achieved. And I continue to think of things in my current life and indeed in the past and in our time together. And I think I'll never again walk into that office on Central Park West where I spent all of those hours and hours and hours over years and years and years and the the sort of disappearance of it feels uncanny. Um, the disappearance both of the person and of the situation feels uncanny. Andrew, what a pleasure it's been to speak to you. Really, it always, always is unfailing. Well, um, thank a you. joy for me every time. Thank you very much and I, I hope that soon enough I won't only be able to give you a virtual hug. Good. A virtual hug to you, Paul. Bye-bye. Bye. To support this show and DubLab's progressive programming, go to dublab.com support. Thank you.